Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Dave Eggers. Welcome to a Bookworm retrospective show, a celebration of 33 years of Bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael recorded more than 1,600 Bookworm conversations. He is on hiatus now for health reasons. Michael is a devoted reader who insists that he feels honored to be speaking with each writer he brings onto Bookworm. The truth is that we are honored to be talking with Michael, who guided us into unknown revelations about our own work. Today's show is the third in a series to examine what novelist Russell Banks called the story of America. We will hear excerpts of bookworm shows which discuss this story. In 1994, Michael spoke with E.L. Doctorow about his best-selling novel, The Waterworks. Michael recalled the reception of Doctorow's earlier novel, Ragtime. In 1975, so many people read that book the day it came out. I remember waiting at the bookstore for it the way one would wait for a Beatles album in those days. (laughs) When I was rereading the book, Ragtime, I was thrilled because, of course, you know, I I come to Ragtime having read subsequently Loon Lake and World's Fair and... The Book of Daniel and Lives of the Poet and Billy Bathgate. And so, of course, the book contains seedlings of the future. And the themes of Dr. O are remarkably consistent. For instance, in Ragtime, the billionaires dream of eternal life, of reincarnation. So do they in the waterworks. It's the central concern of that book, to live forever. Um, the little boy who seems, at least in the final pages, to have narrated Ragtime, is also one who is prescient. He knows before the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand that the Archduke is in danger. That is very much the status of the boy in World's Fair, looking forward and looking back. And the novelist seems to have this wonderful relationship to look back on characters who are trying to guess what the future will be. The future is the novelist at his desk looking back on them. But I wondered about that consistency. It can't be defined, but are you aware of it as you were? No, fortunately not. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, For many, many years, people have been telling me that uh, one book is so different from another, and I've always known that wasn't true. I think not only thematic preoccupations emerge over and over but I sometimes think um, basically I have a repertory company of actors and I give them different names in each book and put different costumes on them but essentially they're the same uh, spirits over and over who recur and uh, uh, return eternally in 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 my uh, working mind, um, but it is true that you don't want to know too well what you're doing um, 
I think that is not a state of mind that's conducive to good work. Um, uh, and as soon as I learn something, possibly from an astute and insightful commentator such as yourself, I do my best to forget it. <laughs> this had to be a 19th century story because the transporting of water was the great accomplishment of that period, bringing it to the city, putting water under pressure. And then I recall that there indeed in New York City had been a reservoir at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, an Egyptian revival monument. Um, very odd, right, in what is now the middle of the city where the New York Public Library stand. So I had my period and I had my city. But the point about the waterworks is that it's a uh, – uh, it it led me to thinking about New York City and, and the – the 19th century, and once I was on to this, you see, all I could see in New York was the 19th century. Every time I walked down the street, there was a 19th century building, and it became apparent to me that in this city that's usually torn down every 10 years or so and rebuilt, there's an enormous presence of that century still there, right there. The Central Park, the Jefferson Market Courthouse, the uh, Cooper Union College, the Armory on 67th Street and Park Avenue, the row houses in Harlem, the tenements on the Lower East Side, they're all just there. And the, but not only that, the very shape of the streets, the construction of the of the uh, the layout, the landscape, that was all done in that period. Walter Benjamin says that the storyteller really is a craftsman, that the great virtue of the storyteller is that he seems to come from an artisan cl class and seems to come from the trades. I guess the thing that gives me most pleasure in the, the waterworks, in ragtime, and in others is the kind of consequent chronicle narration that Benjamin sees as being very much the result of someone who cares about where he lives near, but who's also traveled far and bringing news back to the people he's telling stories to. I wanted to talk to you about craftsmanship. If you ask me what my sense of the calling is, um, it, it, I take pl great pleasure in thinking it was a kind of trade, of thinking of myself as getting up to going to work in the morning like everybody else. In terms of my own personal life, I've lived a very um, ordinary, uh, average kind of uh, domesticated existence, uh, which I think Faubert also suggested is the way to, uh, to get your work done. Live like a bourgeois. That's right. I wondered about you and Forebears. Oh, well... Um, it, it is true that I think every book is an answer to some other book, that the conversation or the communication a writer has not only with his readers, not only on a contemporary lateral uh, line, but with the past, always with the past, as if there are all these people sitting around in some wonderful um, eventless heaven um, talking to each other <laughs> and um, to the extent that you use a, a literary convention whether you're aware of it or not as I seem to have done in this book um, I I am responding as a as a hopeful child to Hawthorne and to Melville 
to Poe and uh, uh, maybe even to Edith Wharton. Someone recently said to me that there is no culture without altruism. I tend to think that the um, the masters, whether it's Melville or Hawthorne, and Melville, you know, toward the end of his life, impoverished and insane, um, but still someone of whom his own little scrawled note remained true, stayed true to the dreams of your youth. Somehow, the sense that the culture is not continuing itself cannot or has stopped in some way. The transmission has ended and that what there is is instead the transmission of selfishness from one generation to the next. It may be, um, uh, though, in general, large social terms, a, a, um, a, a loss of uh, any kind of real communal, uh, serious, sincere communal um, uh, ideal uh, something has deteriorated uh, uh, from the way I think it used to be, although that might, itself might be a, an unwarranted sentimentality. But it just seems to me that in the past, there, even uh, when things were bad, there was always a sense that, well, this should be, something should be done about this. And I'm not sure that the something that should be done about this survives the political process today. That was E.L. Doctorow. In 2019, Michael's bookworm guest was Mexican author Valeria Luiselli, who lives in the United States. Today, Valeria Luiselli is my guest. Her book, Lost Children Archive, is an archive. It's labeled as a novel. But it's many things at once. It wants to explore as many forms at once because the people who are lost children are looking to find out who they are, what form they fit. And the parents in this book are driving toward the southern border to encounter the lost children and discover that they and their children are among the lost children, that it is not until we accept the condition of being lost that we can begin to find ourselves again. In your last book, you did a collaboration with workers after hours, some of whom worked on an assembly line, and they got to contribute to the direction of the book. This book, too, seems to me to be the product of people who are not usually invited to participate and tell their stories. Well, first of all, I'm so happy to be back here, Michael. I'm delighted. It's, it feels like coming back home somehow. It's As you said, it's three books now, but from very early on, I've, I've been coming. And I, I always, um, it's, a, it's an important moment of my book's life for me to come and talk to you, in part because I think I start understanding my books after I talk to you. Oh, you uh, are honoring <laughs> me too deeply. No, no, but I am interested in a kind of fiction that is self-conscious and self-critical of its role in the world, how it composes and intervenes in the world. 
And insofar as I'm interested in that, I'm interested in in showing the the threads that that fiction is composed with, right? Well, I had the great good fortune of being taught by John Barth, who was in American writing, let's say the beginning of what they called metafiction, fiction that was very aware of its own process and began to say that the shape of the story is the story. Frequently, the Barth effect was to lodge itself deeper into literature. The Luiselli effect, if you'll allow me such, is to take literature into the world and say that there was never a literature that didn't come from the world. We live in culture in a warfare of belief, and this archive is in many ways an archive that says, that says ultimately to us why we are dealing with internal contradiction until we are behaving in an inhumane manner. In, in the process of documenting uh, what is left out and what is included is so telling of what the foundational politics and philosophy of, 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 of an era is, right? And I had that in mind all the time. Like, how, how do I map this region? How do I document political violence in the U.S.? It's really been, for me, a, a process of listening, of sitting down and listening to people. It has been about listening to testimonies in court given by children who come here undocumented and seeking asylum, and later on by children in, in communities in the U.S. who are in the process of either being deported or in the process of integrating, and more recently, um, children in detention centers, which is where I'm, I'm working now. Now, documenting that, but putting... Uh, those documents a la par with, say, uh, the cantos by Ezra Pound that are, um, I, I refer to the first canto of Ezra Pound often in this, in this novel, which is a translation from Latin, not Greek, of the 11th book of the Odyssey, which is the part of the Odyssey where Odysseus is descending into the underworld. Culture travels from culture to culture. Right and in a right. sense... The Lost Children Archive is the report of a chorus, a chorus of voices as ultimately it, what would you say, essentializes within a road trip with two parents and two children, all of whom are becoming aware of what they're seeing, what they're seeing on the Great American Road Trip. I, I was definitely interested in exploring the road trip subgenre, which is such an essentially American one, right? Um, which also rests on the underlying kind of foundational myth of the U.S. Another way of telling the story of journeying that is perhaps more... Um, more common in the Latin American tradition, which is the idea of journeying 
inward and journeying into a kind of infernum, right? And down toward a kind of limbo or infernum. And, um, and that's the other journey that is told in this book, right? Not only the family's journey across the American landscape, but also the journey of seven kids aboard a train who are probably riding north, but at the same time riding down towards a kind of hell or limbo, right? And that second story, to sort of tie this back to what we were saying a, a moment ago, is told in in conversation with all these other great narratives of of journeying and migration uh and Homer I mean and starting with Homer and then and then passing through Pound I think it's crazy to think that the novels that are written on the North American continent can be divided between American and Mexican. I think, you know, I think that Marquez mm. knew what he was learning from Faulkner. Absolutely. That Faulkner knew what he was learning from ancient, you right. know, and tribal you, narrative. And you can't explain someone like McCormick McCarthy, for example, without Rulfo. And so the children are the narrators here. The chorus of children who are coming, they're moving north, but they're moving down, <laughs> and they're moving into hell, and their conditions are being described here with attention paid to the form of the telling. In other words, not what is happening to them, not what is being done to them, but their stories, exactly, which makes all the difference in all the world. All the difference. Their their agency is not stripped off. They're not just these, uh, uh, as as often narratives portray children that migrate here. These victims. I mean, they are victims of a brutal and violent system, but they are also the the, the great epic heroes of of today. Migration globally today is the big issue of our time and we have to learn how to tell the story in a smarter, more lucid, more generous, more complex way. These are people who are still willing to forgive us, who have a life, who need to be freed and given back to their own culture, their own parents, not covered with lice, mm. not harmed, not incapable of recognizing their mother and father. We are in charge of making sure, if we're going to be in charge of anything, a dubious condition, but we are in charge of making sure that people get back what belongs to them. To leave a record of how we view our time, of how we thread it together in fiction, of how we put together documents to create an archive, is really the only thing that we can do for someone later to come and continue building 
on that dialogue, right? On on it's if we don't leave our version of today, there will be very little to build upon. Uh, very, it'll be a, an empty um, an empty lot. No discourse to take apart and refute and argue with. Nothing to build upon. So I mean, I I do think, and and at the end, what makes community? The only thing that we have between us, you and me here, and then the people that are listening to us and us sitting here, are these words, right? That can thread meaning and thread understanding. And I mean, they're not words are not trivial. I mean, they are a very powerful source of keeping communities together, at least keeping them dynamically in dialogue. That was Valeria Luiselli. This is the third bookworm show to explore the story of America. We'll be back after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. This is a bookworm retrospective. I'm Dave Eggers. In 2013, Michael spoke with Chimamanda Adichie about her book, Americana. I've read an extraordinary book. It's by a writer who is new to me, although it is her fourth book to be published in America. The book is called Americana, and the author is Chimamanda Adichie. It not only presents a Nigerian woman in America, but a Nigerian woman whose literary sensibility is being shaped by the culture she sees around her. She writes blogs. She becomes famous as a race blogger. What is a race blogger? I don't know. I think I made that up. (laughs) I, I think Americana is about, among other things, about the love of reading. Because it's a book in which the characters come to read and love books. Ifemelo was a character who started off not really being interested in reading. When she comes to the U.S. in particular, she actually finds a certain consolation in books. She discovers American literature and she starts to read. And I think her blogging is an extension of that. Well, she falls in love with a man who loves to read American novels. She doesn't like his books. Eventually, she comes maybe to like Sidney Sheldon. (laughs) (laughs) But then she develops a reader's sensibility And because this is a novel about love, race, and hair, as you've said, it's fascinating to see the sensibility shaping itself. Mm -hmm. It's a novel about how a person becomes him or herself. Mm -hmm. She is letting herself be natural Mm -hmm. in every way. It's not just her hair. Mm -hmm. It is also her desire to say exactly what she thinks about race and the people around her. And because, as it was when she was a young girl, her direct and blatant opinions are refreshing. She becomes beloved to the people who speak to her. They know she will tell them the truth. We follow a woman from a military dictatorship to America 
where her natural intransigence mm. first gets her into terrible trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And then she begins to find her voice and finds what's natural about herself and makes decisions about her hair that she will no longer keep the hair that a PR representative has. I wanted to write about hair because I'm fascinated by hair. Um, I, and part of the, the section in the novel in which Ifemel has this hair <laughs> journey was very much based on my own life. When I, I did an internship when I was an undergraduate here and the advice that I got from, my, um, from the woman who, whose job it was to give advice about jobs was to say to me, you need to have your hair straightened because you have to look professional. And I had my hair in braids at the time, actually in cornrows. And I remember being struck by that. And of course, I very eagerly got my hair straightened because I wanted to look professional and I wanted to get the job. And I did. But I think for me, it was a beginning of just realizing how particularly the hair on the, on the heads of black women can have all kinds of meanings. So that if a black woman, for example, has dreadlocks, often there's an assumption that it means something. While actually it can simply be that she doesn't want to have chemicals in her hair, you know, that she, and that the way her hair grows on her head doesn't look like what we consider mainstream attractive or mainstream professional. And so that it then becomes a journey of trying to approximate what is considered acceptable. And that journey involves horrible chemicals in your hair, all kinds of discomfort. And um, so really, I think that if anything, if this novel comes from a certain kind of longing for me, it's that I... I long for a world in which all kinds of hair are considered perfectly fine and professional. She meets a man, a black intellectual, who teaches at Yale. She's got a forwardness from birth, and she's looking for it yes. in life. How do you manifest <laughs> truthfulness hmm. in a foreign country? And then she returns to Nigeria, and she has to watch that truth being tested again, because in Nigeria, she did not regard herself as black, mm. whereas in America, she regards herself as a non-American black mm. looking at black Americans. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have to say, I really love, um, I love your reading of Ife um, this is This is kind of how I hoped she would be read. I have to say that I'm, I'm a hopeless, hopeless romantic, although I, I like to hide it well. The man, Obinza, he goes to London. Eventually, he's working under false names, and he's cleaning toilets. Yeah. So here's this young man who grew up the son of a professor, grew up loving books. And I wanted to write about that very strange, the strange thing that happens when you go from a life of, of relative comfort, which is what he had in Nigeria, to to this place where in your imagination it's perfection, but you get there and you're cleaning toilets. After walking in, in these sort of dehumanizing circumstances, he then goes to a bookshop in London and settles down in a corner and reads and becomes himself again. Well, of course we share this belief that it is in encountering the full statement of another person's imagination that one becomes most oneself. I guess I found myself loving this book because of that. His mother loves a novel by Graham Greene. 
he doesn't like it. And Ifemelu has not liked it for a long time. But when she finally reads it, she says it is human and passionate, and people will be reading it for the next 200 years, which I think is the mark of success for a novel. <laughs> I mean, I think ultimately that's what we're talking about when we talk about great books. Not our opinion, yep. but their durability. Yep. Their durability in preserving and creating the human. Which book of Graham Greene is it? <laughs> it's the heart of the matter. Which is the passionate affair novel. I'm in an arm wrestle with the characters in Americana. They're presenting me with alternatives that are designed to outrage me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and just in case we don't hear it from the prose, it's studded with the blog. Yes. Would you read one for me? Okay. Maybe I'll do the Understanding America for the Non-American Black. A few explanations of what things really mean. Of all their tribalisms, Americans are most uncomfortable with race. If you're having a conversation with an American and you want to discuss something racial that you find interesting, and the American says, oh, it's simplistic to say it's race. Racism is so complex. It means they just want you to shut up already. Because of course racism is complex. Many abolitionists wanted to free the slaves, but didn't want black people living nearby. Lots of folk today don't mind a black nanny or a black limo driver, but the sure as hell mind a black boss. What is simplistic is saying, it's so complex. But shut up anyway, especially if you need a job or a favor from the American in question. Sometimes Americans say culture when they mean race. They say a film is mainstream when they mean white folk like it or made it. When Americans say urban, it means black and poor and possibly dangerous and potentially exciting. And when they say racially charged, it means we are uncomfortable saying racist. Chimamanda Adichie, reading one of her narrator's blogs about race. And you can tell that in this novel, whenever the book became or felt sedate, the author felt it was time <laughs> <laughs> to uncap another outrageous blog. It's so much fun to read because the writer knows when you need to be jolted, when she needs to poke you between the ribs. Yes? <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. I, I had a lot. I have, I have, yes, absolutely. That was Chimamanda Adichie discussing her book Americana. We conclude our journey through the story of America with Gore Vidal's recollection of Eleanor Roosevelt and Henry Adams. Henry Adams is a kind of brilliant, uh, slightly bilious chorus to American history. Uh, but I share many of his views, and perhaps one would say prejudices. Uh, he could never really make up his mind. At one point, he'd be a Hegelian saying, which he actually said to Franklin Roosevelt, as reported to me by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was there. And Franklin was Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the First World War. And Adams's dining room overlooked uh, 
Lafayette Park and beyond that to White House where his grandfather and great-grandfather had been president. They were talking about the politics of the day and Henry Adams said, young man, it makes no difference on earth who presides over that house, which is a very sort of Hegelian idea of histories without people. It is just great tides and currents. And Eleanor Roosevelt, this, this story's been much printed, but Eleanor Roosevelt told me what she said, which I've never seen in print. She said, Mr. Adams, what a terrible thing to say to a young man who would like to make the world a better place. To tell him that. <laughs> and she said, I realized that everybody was looking at me. She was very, very shy. Till the day she died, she still blushed. And she said, there I was, blushing. I said, what did Mr. Adams say? She didn't say anything. No one said anything. The conversation went on. That was Gore Vidal. In today's show, Michael also spoke with E.L. Doctorow, Valeria Luiselli, and Chimamanda Adichie. I'm Dave Eggers. I'm grateful to KCRW for this series of bookworm retrospective shows which will remind us of the monumental achievements of my friend, Michael Silverblatt. This show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineer was P.J. Shahamat. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.